the mission of the restaurant is definitely to promote and protect, preserve these recipes and histories in Mexico. And so what we've managed to do and had a lot of fun doing is telling, you know, talking about the recipes that are from Mexico, but also going back to where the ingredients came from and tracing those all the way back. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. And today, I'm super excited about this episode. We are hanging out with Chef Rico Torres from Michli, which, by the way, means clout in Nahuatl, which is the language from the Aztec. Pretty cool, right? Over at Michli, Rico and his partner, Diego Galicia, are doing something awesome. They are not just cooking food. They are telling stories with every dish, all inspired by the amazing flavors of Mexico. Oh, and by the way, they have just opened this new coffee place called Greenhouse. So check it out. Grab a snack, settle in, and let's get into the incredible world of Chef Rico Torres at Michli. <music> Chef, welcome to the podcast Flavors Unknown. I'm really delighted to finally have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I had you know a great experience at Mixly. You know, I we were just talking about it it's a year and a half ago, and like it's amazing. You know, time flies. Can you tell us where you are originally from? Yeah, a uh, little town called El Paso, Texas. So just on the other side of the border, but. You know, I, I didn't really feel Texan until I left El Paso. It was so far out there. It's our own little sovereignty in a lot of ways. And Mexico, of course, is just on, I mean, it's always visible. Wherever you are on I-10, you see Mexico on the other side. El Paso is kind of in a valley and so is Juarez, Chihuahua. I was always fascinated by the sea of lights, especially at nighttime. It's about 40 plus miles of, you know, two cities separated by a river in a valley and the mountains are surrounding each side. And it's always interesting. There's star. There's a star on the mountain on the El Paso side that lights up. There's there's a little message on the on the Mexican side that says La Biblia es la verdad, Lela. And people make their pilgrimage up to that part of the mountain on hands and knees sometimes every year. But yeah, like I said, it's it's out there. And in, in a lot of ways, it's the it's the desert flower of Texas because it's too far from the West Coast. It's too far from the East Coast. It's very far from the major cities in, in Texas, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Houston. So, you know, we like a desert flower that doesn't receive enough rain. It just sometimes blooms a little brighter. It's, El Paso is full of incredible talent, creative talent from music and art to food and architecture 
and just a ton, a ton of history in this area. El Paso del Norte, the name says it all, especially at the development, in the later stages of development in Mexico and the United States. So if you close your eyes, what food and the smell reminds you of your childhood in El Paso? Roasting chile verdes, guisados, leather, <laughs> which is interesting. Metalworks for me because I grew up in the welding industry. Yeah, my dad is my dad and my uncle own Airmix Welding out there, going on forty some years. One of the largest stores for welding supply in Texas. And for me, I was there early on, working on Saturdays and sometimes after school on the weekdays. And just those smells and being you know being around that type of environment. This is where I grew up. Okay. So kind of far from food. Exactly. So what drawn you into, you know, into cooking then? I'm an artist at heart. I, you know, I was always painting. I wanted to be in cinema. I actually did a lot of internship work early on. I worked at Univision for about a year in my senior year in high school. I did a lot of PA work when I got to San Antonio. And, you know, I paint, I have a lot of, I do a lot of painting especially when I was younger, and that somehow translated into food later on. And because my family is a family of entrepreneurs, it's just in my blood. I got fired from everywhere until I, until I was a, my own boss. Okay. Can we go back to this comment that you may make about, you know, talking about painting and somehow it made like transferred into food? So can you, can you explain that, that transfer? How, how did you get from painting and art into into food oh yeah well i was in restaurants to pay the bills and i wasn't much of a server so i, I always did well in the kitchen especially with live fires you know I, my canvas switched from from an actual canvas to to a plate and i saw that it was an easy transition it was doing something i love it was immediate satisfaction you know you can see how customers react when your work hits the table and they're, they're done with their dinner. And that was something that resonated with me and kind of just made that little switch. It, was, it, it wasn't too difficult to go from one to the other. Obviously, now at Michelin, you know, that's a huge part of what we do is this creativity and, you know, along with the research and, and everything else. But the presentation is big and that in itself is this artwork. So yeah, get it, get like the presentation and the plating and, you know, the connection with, you know, the other form of art and so on. But how, how did you, let's say, got like the, the techniques and, you know, when it comes to, you know, to food, because have you, I've been to culinary school or you learn, you know, as no, no, I taught, I'm self-taught. self-taught. I was actually okay. going to school because like I said, I wanted to be in film, but when I was cooking at, at restaurants, at one point I met somebody that had a catering, a small catering company. Their only client was Merrill Lynch. And I told them, you know what, I will, I didn't even know what a stage was back then, but I said, I'll work for free if you show me what you're doing. And I stuck around for about six months. And at that point, he was getting ready to move with his family to Florida and had all this equipment. He was running a catering company out of his house. And so I borrowed, I took a borrow a little money and took, took all that equipment and kind of hit the ground running from there. And I also took Merrill Lynch on as the client and I just devoured all kinds of information. Obviously I was paying the bills and had to work and there was no time to go to school at that point. It was, it was baptism by fire in a lot of ways. And so a deep dive 
and I would ask for a deposit and figure it out. And we, I did that for 10 years. Excellent, excellent service was number one. I always took away a lot of stuff that I learned with my dad. Save a penny, lose a dollar, you know, stuff like having excellent, excellent, excellent product, but also even better service, maintaining proper relationships, taking care of your employees. And those are business things that I always kind of carried with me. And that's how I did it. So year after year, got a little bit better. I learned, I kept learning and before you knew it, it uh, 10 years had passed and I was a little burnt out of catering. I had plenty of clients by then. We had done a great job. I was a little burnt out of the style of cooking that it was because you know, I spent a lot of time by myself sometimes or it was a situation where you're cooking something that might not be eaten for another two, three, four hours. A lot of changes in menus. So I couldn't focus on any one thing. You know, Sometimes a person wants a party that has a more of a, a tiki theme and, or they want a barbecue situation. I would never settle for the enchilada plate though or the quinceanera party. Around that time in San Antonio, it was very popular to have like a barbecue, a brisket plate for $8 and enchilada plates. It was, it was always a no. You know, we, we always from the get aspire to do high-end food, high-quality, wholesome stuff. Where was your source of inspiration at that time? Because you said you had to, you know, you had to deliver and, you know, it was a, a business to run. Oh, for sure. It was, uh, well, it was about 2003, 2004. Food Network was still very new. So I devoured all of that. Books, everything on the internet that I could find, YouTube, anywhere that I could find it. If I really enjoyed something, I would, at a restaurant, I would find a way to contact the chef and, and get some answers and information out of them. I remember the first time that we had a whole pig, I had to contact uh, Chef Sohaki here in San Antonio. And he was so kind to call me back and spend about 30 minutes with me on the phone, giving me a rundown on what I was going to do with that pig uh, as far as keeping it and, and brining it and, and uh, onto the cooking process of it. Something actually, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that in years. I'm gonna have to send him a message and remind him. Thank him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, hey, by the way, I just have a pig. Yeah, come over. <laughs> no, he didn't come over, but it was. But he did. I did call the restaurant. I left a message, and he called me back that day. Wow, that's very uh, nice. Another time, I actually sent an email to Elenia and asked him about a a recipe that they were doing. And I don't know who responded because it just said Elenia at the bottom or, or kitchen team, but they responded, you know, the next day and gave me the recipe. Oh, nice. And told me good luck. So throughout my career, it's been things like that. If you want it, go get it. Go find it. Go find the answer. Go ask somebody. Aaron Franklin gave us his recipes for for making brisket. Of course, the caveat there is you're, we're not Aaron Franklin. It's like, hey, salt, pepper, water, smoke, thyme. <laughs> you know, it's it's all in the mania. The, the, you have to have that handle for it. And so many briskets later, they're still not as good as, as his are. That's the know-how yeah. here. Yes. Yeah. it's that, That's why I tell people like brisket and, and barbecue can be very expensive because A, the best, of, the best of the best is always top quality beef. And that is only getting more expensive. And the, and you know, barbecue is very fickle. It could be, you could have the exact same temperatures on one day and the weather changes the next day and you're fighting against that. And it's really just about having a feeling for it. 
very much like nixtamal and masa. The recipes are out there for making nixtamal, but it you have to have a feel for it. And no one recipe is true to the corn that you're cooking that day under the circumstances of the day. Could you tell us about the journey now from that after that 10 years, you know, in catering your business and then the initial interest in cooking to like co-owning Mixly? Like I said, I had been doing a lot of cooking by myself. I had roadies. I had people that would assist me with the caterings, but for the most part, I was alone. And I didn't know a lot of chefs in town. So I started looking, you know, like I said, like you want something, you got to go look for it. So I started looking and I found a group of cooks around town that were doing, that were getting ready to start a pop-up, you know, pop-ups. These are guys that were at other restaurants and wanted to be able to cook stuff that they like to cook on their own terms. So I was like, cool, we can do this. I met up with them. I said, hey, I got a, I have a catering company. I have all the plates. I have all the logistics. I have all the stuff that we need to make this happen. And I knew how to logistically organize these things. So that was my big contribution along with my dishes, of course. And we just kind of, we did that for about a year. But during that time is where I met Chef Diego, which is my partner now. And we really just kind of gravitated towards each other. We're very much a yin and yang uh, type of relationship, black and white in a lot of ways, but also very similar, especially in our family dynamics, you know, having parents from Mexico and having two brothers. I also have two brothers. He's middle, I'm oldest. And just a a lot of things that we were very much online with. And, you know, right before I made that change, I was at a point in my life where I wanted to expand and do bigger things. And I said to the universe, send me somebody that is a lot like me and is ready to, to buckle down and do some work. And that was Diego. I met him shortly after that. We did about 13 dinners with the Texas Cooks Co-op, which is what we were called. We would meet like around 11.30 p.m. on a Wednesday because a lot of the other cooks would get out late. Diego and I were the only ones that had jobs at 7 in the morning. And so, But we made it happen. And little by little, you know, we we kept saying that we could do things better on our own and probably make a profit on it too. So we did. We by the thirteenth one, we said thank you guys. It's been great, and we left. Did our own pop up. I think we did two by ourselves. But by then, that idea of of a restaurant that focused on Mexican cuisine was already percolating. And uh, Diego came to me one day with the word Michli and told me about how. You know, it means cloud. I was excited because in my own personal life, I already had an album of photographs of beautiful clouds that had inspired me and had, for some reason, I was drawn to take to take their picture. And, you know, again, it was before you were keeping a lot of pictures on your phone. So I had a lot of them in actual photograph print. I had a little, you know, I thought that that was something that also resonated with me. And we hit the ground running. He quit his job at, he was the corporate chef at Taco Cabana. I had my catering company. I was also, I was also at, at the end of 10 years, my wife and I had had our, our son Kingston. She had taken six months maternity leave. And I just, I felt like, you know, maybe I'm going to take a, a little hiatus myself of paternity leave so that she had to go back to work. And I wanted to spend time with my son and kind of recoup from a decade of doing the same thing. And so I did that. And that's when, that's when the wheels for Michelin really started turning. 
before we knew it, we were opening up in a train car. I was, my wife and I had bought our first house at the same time. And, you know, my son was about a year old at that point. And we opened up Michelin in 2013. Yeah, when you reflect on that success, you know, that what Michelin, you know, came about. So what do you think that you did differently from others, you know, in the culinary world that, you know, others may not have done? I did what I wanted to do. That's what I did differently. I, I told you I got fired from every job I had, and that's because every time I was at another restaurant, I was wanting to change things to my perspective. This could taste better this way. This would look better that way. This would be more creative this way. But of course, you know, and I get it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an owner too, but they didn't want to hear from the young guy who had ideas. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that's how it was back then. That's why I feel like there was more success to it. We also threw a lot of rules of the restaurant out the window completely. We so, and somehow <laughs> proclaimed ourselves to be the, the the experts in Mexican food in San Antonio. We had a lot of desire and passion to do really excellent things. I bring. I'm very good at developing flavors. Diego's awesome at putting dishes together and presenting. You know this presentation that's very artistic. And that was the dynamic that we had. We, when we opened up, it was like baptism by fire again. Our first table that night was the Latin advisory team at the Culinary Institute of America. And that included people like Maricel Presilla, who had about four books at the time on, on chocolate, and Roberto Santibanez, of course, who's a famous chef in Washington and New York, and Rick Bayless himself. Uh, I believe Enrique Olvera was supposed to be at that table and flew out that morning, but that would have been pretty, that was already pretty harrowing as it was. And it was shit. It was, it was terrible food. I didn't know anything about Nixtamal. I didn't know anything about grinding cacao, but we did it all from scratch. There was so many things in Mexico that I had never tasted before and we were making them. And they were there, they ate the food and they left us, you know, they actually spent a couple of hours couple of hours there. A week later, we got a letter that had some recommendations about, hey, you guys are on a good track, but you need to change some of these things. And of course, we took, you know, we took all of that, all of that advice and, and worked with it and hit the, you know, kept, kept working, kept working on it. 10 years later, Rick Bayless sat at the restaurant here about five months ago and loved it. And I was excited to show him. And I just felt this confidence that I had in the past when I met him the first time to present and, and offer him the stuff that we were making. And in this menu that I presented him had four moles back to back, which is uh, my specialty. When I, you know, if you ask, Hey, what does Chef Rico do? So I do moles. And quite honestly, there was a lot of moles in, my, in the first half of my career at Michelin that I had never experienced or tasted. And so for me, it became a quest of becoming very familiar with the ingredients and learning what it is that they require and how they react with other ingredients and who's the best friend, you know, like, and these combinations, anise and orange and just on and on, you know, little, little things that, that, that were, and figuring that stuff out is what helped me get, really get a really good handle on how to make a mole. How do you approach this? Is it like trial and error then, you know, in, in terms yeah, of? A little yeah, bit tr trial and error. I have this thing where, I can taste and smell foods and, or, you know, taste and smell things, but I also kind of see them like colors. 
in my mind. And so it, that helps me pair things together and I can be like, oh yeah, you know, watermelon and tomatoes are really good friends. And we'll put that together. So for, you, for, so for you, it's not like what grows together goes together, but it's like the colors that are similar, you know, go together then. No, no, no. What, I mean, all, yes, those things also make a lot of sense. I'm just saying that when I'm tasting things, things it's like seeing colors. Oh, In my got brain, it. Got your it, brain, got they it. make sense. Yes. Yeah. I understand In that. In my brain, they make sense. Uh, okay. Yeah, sometimes it's the same color. Sometimes they grow together. Sometimes it's unexpected. But I can taste things and be like, you know what? This needs that. Or it, we should add some more of this, some, some of this and it'll really wake things up. That was that was how I could – that was my my thing, I guess. That really helped me, especially because I wasn't classically trained. And so there was, some, there was a lot of things that I didn't know. I remember when I met the first meeting that I had with the Cook's Co-op, I didn't know what a Vitamix was. I didn't know what a vacuum sealer was. And everybody was talking about the Paco Jet and, and uh, the antique griddle. And so, you know, I would just nod and smile and under the table kind of <laughs> making a list of things I was going to look up later. <laughs> but that's how I was. You make it, uh, you, you fake it, it until you make it. Huh? <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's, I mean, absolutely. That's, I've done a lot of that. Uh-huh. But, you know, that's, that's also part of having this desire to succeed uh-huh. and find a way. So can you explain to uh, the audience like what Mitzli is? Yeah. So Mitzli means cloud in Nahuatl. That's the language spoken throughout the Aztec Empire. For us, and the way that clouds travel, our menus also travel. So state to state, region to region, sometimes even back in time. That's that's the, the concept for Mishli. We We're about 200 miles away from the closest border. We're surrounded by this sometimes a diluted version of Tex-Mex, and that's a whole other subject, a whole, probably a whole other podcast entirely. From the beginning of Tex-Mex and its downfall in mid-century to its revitalization and the evolution of what Tex-Mex is, where it's going now, that actually brings a little bit of honor back to, to its origins. But we were in this little limbo, and we wanted to be able to tell the histories and all these stories of Mexico through the food. And at the time that we were deciding that this is what it was going to be like, I had no idea how how much history was was involved and how intertwined it was with the rest of the world and how the discovery of Mexico really led to a to to globalization to a, a truly round planet, especially after the Spanish find routes from Alcapulco to Manila. And now trading is occurring trans-Pacific and transatlantic, and trading is happening around the world in true form. You know, that's there's just so much there that was uncovered, and we're still uncovering. I feel like we're always scratching the surface, even a decade later. So, I mean, it's a tasting menu, correct? As well, if you we are looking at a, we've structure. always had a tasting menu. Yeah, it's varied from ten, twelve. Right now, eight seems to be the perfect number for for our customer base. And we're going on about five menus like that. It just seems to be the right number. Um, One more dish, they're way too full. One less is not right. But a lot, a lot of thought goes into how you feel when you get here and when you leave. So for reasons like that, we don't serve a cappuccino or a latte at the end of your dinner. 
we only do cafe de olla and you know even the cafe de olla has its own digestive qualities with the cinnamon with the cinnamon and, and cloves in it and even our menus especially if you're ordering something from the bar or if you're choosing a, a wine in a lot of ways they are made to funnel you into the right direct into the right choice so you can't make too many wrong choices Unlike maybe going to a Mongolian barbecue where you see all your ingredients laid out and it looks like a lot of fun to put them all on your plate and then throw them all on the, on the plancha or wherever they're cooking the wok, <laughs> you know, you're not excited about it anymore. It doesn't make sense. So before we continue, you mentioned Café de Oya, which I really love. You mentioned cinnamon and clove. Do you as well put a little bit of orange zest in there or no? Yeah, some, we'll put the orange yeah. peel in there. Yeah, the orange the peel. I love beans. it. And the piloncillo. And the piloncillo is an unrefined sugar that still has trace minerals and vitamins in it. So it's interesting that, you know, unlike an unrefined sugar, unlike a refined sugar, which I still argue to my grand, to my mom and to my wife that it, it's worse than cocaine. <laughs> so can you please <laughs> limit the amount that you try to give, you know, the kids and the family? Yeah. I like that you put the orange peel because there's other places I've been to and it's pure, it's just cinnamon, you know, and they call it uh, Café de Oya. And I think, you know, there's so many other ingredients in there that they are missing. So, yeah. And it's also one of these recipes that doesn't necessarily have a place of origin. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't have to have a strict recipe. I've seen, I've enjoyed some that have chile de arbol, that have pescal, that have ginger. We made one that was more inspired by chai tea because we were talking about a time in Mexico where there were a lot of people from India that were living in Mexico City in the 1800s. And so those flavors also made their way into a cafe de olla that we were serving. I had chai, yeah. So uh, like, like al pastor that also doesn't uh, necessarily sure, have sure. a unique place of origin. Some of the ingredients can be changed out. But then you have things like chile nogada or mole poblano. You don't mess with those recipes. Uh-huh. So when I, I came like a year and a half ago, the menu was something around, it was like, like really history. It was, I do not remember exactly, but it was something about like the confluence of like Mexico and French cooking. It was called the Porfiriato. Yeah. It was, it was, Focused on the presidency or Correct. Yep. dictatorship of yep. Porfirio Diaz, who himself was a Francophile uh-huh. at a time when Mexico very much wanted to do what they were doing in France and Belgium and London. And so it was a time in Mexico where even eating chiles and beans and corn was frowned upon. Of course, things those things always happen behind closed doors. They do a lot of things when people are being shamed, but... It was also a very interesting period of people really trying to be something they were not. There were one of my favorite stories is the fake champagne parties. There, you know, people would want to have fancy dinners and include champagne as they do in France, and maybe you couldn't afford it or find it, and so people took to making it on their own as 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 we do. And so you and I've seen this recipe in the archives at UTSA libraries. They, the recipe is cheap white wine, cream of tartar, baking soda, bring to a boil, rebottle it. And if your friends don't like it, it's because they just don't know what fine, fine wines are. It's their fault, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listening to you and then remembering the uh, experience that I had, it was definitely not 
just a meal. It was like a narrative. It was like, you know, telling stories. And so how, how do you go about this? And, you know, first is finding like a topic, you know, for a story. And then how do you go about putting together a menu with translating those stories into dishes? When we start talking about what are we going to do next? It's the conversation is like, okay, first of all, what have we done? What have we not done? What is the next season coming up? And that kind of dictates some things, you know, like if it's going to be, if we're getting into the summer season, we might want to do something where the dishes lend themselves more to colder preparations and we might end up on the coast. At the same time, like I said, what what's available? So it's not the right time to get berries for this season, but it's all tomatoes. And so we'll go with that. And then, then we just kind of start chipping away at it. Okay, hey, well, we're going to do this, but what if we did it like this? And so that Mexico City menu, the Porfiriato, really started off as it was going to be uh, a version of a subway, the subway menu, which is all the street foods that you find in the, in the metro. But then it turned into – no, I'm sorry. It wasn't the Porfiriato but it was a Mexico city menu that eventually turned into 500 years of Mexico city. And we began when the Aztec actually, we began actually 800 years prior where the Aztecs had reached Tenochtitlan, then the arrival of the Spanish, then the fall of Tenochtitlan and the birth of Mexico city and what that meant onward and the little story. And then little by little, we start whittling away at the stories Okay, very good. So, and and you are changing those menus like what every what six weeks, or no? Three months. Three months. Okay. Yeah. Three, three months. months. Every three. Yeah, months. I don't know where the forty-five days thing started, but that is in a lot of articles. That's probably <laughs> where I read articles. it. Yeah. yeah, I you know over the decade I've noticed that journalism is sometimes a rushed effort. Either they're just picking up information that they read in another article or, hey, we have a deadline in two hours. Can you send us high quality, high res pictures of your spot and some dishes? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like, no, why didn't you ask me a week ago? Yeah, exactly. So when you look back now, and especially the early days, immediately, it's like, what was the one biggest obstacle that you faced and, and how did you, did you overcome it? Making it viable, you know, making sure that we turn a profit mm-hmm. and stay creative and stay true to the mission. Super important. It's been a tough ride to do that. This type of restaurant struggles sometimes in this city. And of course, people come and, oh, if you were in Chicago or if you were in New York or San Fran, but we're not. We're here. This is our mission here. And so that's been some of some of some of the biggest challenges. Another one would be the peopling. And a lot of times I'm more of a counselor or pretty much anything else other than a chef in keeping this thing running. <laughs> you know, there's so many different personalities that need to be dealt with and every you're trying to keep a team together, knowing when to make cuts and knowing when to make a, an investment on an individual that that is has been tantamount to having the right team because obviously I can't do all of this by myself. You know, honestly, some some of the easiest days for me is when the dishwasher didn't show up and I got to just wash dishes for the whole night and listen to my music. <laughs> it's it's challenging in so many ways to 
you know, also just do the right thing and by your by the restaurant, by the individuals that work here, and make sure that we're open to keep doing this and that they keep getting their paychecks. And were there's a moment where you thought Mixly wouldn't work out? No, not really. Not really. It gets tough sometimes, and you do kind of question it, but that type of thinking is not very productive. Better to spend that energy finding solutions, finding a new route. Obviously, you know, COVID was tough on everybody, and we weren't any different. We took advantage of everything that every opportunity that was presented to us and we pivoted as often as we needed to. And we kept coming back. As a matter of fact, we opened right at the end of the pandemic in a new spot with, new spot, a, much, yeah. with a team that was four times as big. Yeah. That's the place I've been to. Yeah. It's beautiful. Beautiful spot. Yeah. Uh, and the bar next to it, which is, you know, a great experience as well. And the wine cellar, which I don't think you got to see when you were. Uh, no, no. So you and your partners have this dynamic collaboration, but how do you navigate the creative difference and the stress that comes with running a, a top-tier restaurant? How do we navigate the differences in creativity? Well, there's only one person that can dictate what what's going to happen, and that's the baby. Mishli is the baby. It, so it's not whatever Chef Dave and I are, are 50-50 partners. So it's not like he's my boss, I'm his boss. It's not like we're at each other's throats because of things. It's like, what does the restaurant need? And, you know, sometimes we'll run with stuff that didn't make sense in hindsight. But for the most part, as long as there's a good argument for it, we're going to give it a shot. Most of the time it works out. And if it doesn't, Whoever's idea it was, we're also humble enough to be like, you know, that didn't work out. Let's switch it out. My bad. <laughs> I'm sorry I fought for it so hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but sometimes you have to fight for your, your art and your passion. And, and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But like I said, the the real important person here is, is the baby. Do we need to make an investment? Do we need to hire another person? On and on. So... Talking about this baby, how do you see uh, this baby growing up and evolving in, in the future? Well, Mystery, I think, is turning into an institution for what it is and what it provides. It's important what we do here. And so. Important in one way. Well, the mission of the restaurant is definitely to you know, promote and protect, preserve these recipes and histories in Mexico. You go out to a Mexican. I'm doing the quoting the quote sign here. Mexican restaurants around here is very limited or very much a version of a Tex Mex or very much the same as 50 other restaurants. You know, and you have about you have so many items on the menu, but when you really start looking into it, it's a lot of the same ingredients and there's not a lot of purpose to it. This restaurant has a lot of purpose behind it. And in a lot of ways it's to re-educate the consumer because a lot of people They'll feel like, hey, Mexican food is, is what we see around here. The enchilada plate with the beans on the side, a little shredded salad, and that's that. Yellow cheese. And there's a reason for the yellow cheese, but it's not the whole story. And so what we've managed to do and had a lot of fun doing is telling, you know, talking about the recipes that are from Mexico, but also, also going back to where the ingredients came from and tracing those all the way back. And so 
We did a, like, for example, we did a masterclass in Lagos last year in Nigeria and on mole poblano. And I didn't actually make a mole poblano. I took all 26 ingredients and we traced each one of them back to their place of origin and how they ended up in Mexico. And funny enough, like three or four, only three or four of them were actually from Mexico. So there's a book coming up in, in the, the future with all those Yeah, I hope insights. so. I mean, I, I have my notes together and yeah. a little kind of whittling away, but I haven't actually sat down for it. I know. But it's a three years of your so life. There is so much history between every menu that the book, I think a book is necessary. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was amazed with, and I went there, you know, at your place only once because, you know, I live in New Jersey. So obviously San Antonio is not next door, but I, I was amazed with, you know, the whole story and the story told through dishes and the ingredients. And I, you know, I, I definitely would love to, to read, you know, everything that you have to say about what you have created so far. So that would be very interesting. <music> So how do you see the, 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 the future of, you know, of, of food and where do you see the whole culinary world going? The future of food and the whole, well, definitely a lot more thought to how the individual feels at the end of the day. Unfortunately, this is still a tough industry. You know, there's a lot of people that, that want to get paid more, but the reality of that is that if you, If an employee needs more money, if to, in order to pay somebody more money, you have to charge more money. And that balance has been very difficult knife edge to, to ride because you go too far on one side and you're going to lose one or the other. And so for the owners, I think that's always been the, the biggest challenge. You know, restaurants, they run on tight margins. That's just how it is. And it could be very busy for a few months. And then all of a sudden you have 90 straight days over a hundred degrees and nobody wants to go out and you're struggling. So yeah, that is that evolution. Hopefully that somebody smarter than me will find a way to change that. But definitely as far as cooking goes, I can honestly say that the thought towards how the body works, how foods react, how a person feels afterwards is definitely a direction that at least myself would be interested in in seeing and, and exploring even further. You know, when I make a mole, I don't fry the ingredients. I don't, I don't, there's a technique where you might take the finished mole and then fry it in lard for this extra layer. But for me, that has always made me feel very heavy afterwards in this ugly way. And I don't want my customers leaving feeling that way. At the same time, I don't want to just feed them ingredients that aren't good for them. You know, these are the people that come and they very generously spend money at, at the restaurant. And this is how we put food on the table and our homes. So from the thought process of how you make the food to the energy that goes into it, you know, when you come into this restaurant, there needs to be some harmony in the kitchen. Yes, we all have challenges in our daily lives. And yes, we might not always be in the best mood, but I don't cultivate a a uh, scenario here where I'm yelling at chefs and they're hating their job so much and hating me. And then they're just cooking with a lot of distaste and, and hate in their heart. That's quite the opposite is what, is what we try to do here. And you, have, really an open, have, you have an open kitchen too. So we have an open kitchen. Yeah. yeah. And then I mean, more ways than one, it's not just that the guests can see the chefs cooking an open kitchen, meaning that, you know, we are here to, we're also here as mentors and, you know, sometimes you, Our employees have to have challenges that they don't know who to reach out to and 
you know, sometimes it's us. And I also have to be prepared to deal with that and give them some kind of answer. Even if I, even if, even if it's just an ear or a shoulder, that is part of the challenge, you know, of, of being at this level. It's not just cooking. It's cooking sometimes is the easiest thing we can do. Okay. But it's, it's that peopling that, that can be challenging. And, you know, you want to give them the best of yourself because they're giving you the best of themselves in most cases. <laughs> but but that's, that's our reality here. Okay, Chef, I'm looking at the, at the time and I, I would like to switch to the rapid fire questions. So you and I are going on a tasting tour in San Antonio. So what are like the five spots that you are going to take me to outside of Mixley, of course? Oh, well, I guess we would go to <laughs> – sorry, Manuel, I really don't go out to eat. Let's see. I love Szechuan House. I love what they're doing at Battalion. I honestly really like the, the food that's happening at Rebel. Uh, it could be a bar, a bar too. Huh? Yeah. Where else do we go to? That? Kind of blanking. Yeah. Okay. I really don't go out to eat like that. Okay. I wish I did. Sometimes it's, oh, you know what? I love Ladino. Ladino is always great. And uh-huh. I love going to Southerly for just like a family night. Okay. Uh, some fried chicken, a lot of oyster, a pressure fried chicken. Oh. Oysters, a bottle of champagne. Yeah. That's great. Okay. That's good living right there. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Oh, a beer. Beer, okay, yes. Yeah, I'm not supposed to be drinking that much beer. Do you have a but, Do you have a, a preference in terms of type? I like a brute IPA. Okay, which is not as strong as an IPA. Yeah, and guilty, guilty. I'm I like a Heineken. <laughs> I think, you know, I grew up in El Paso. It wasn't uncommon for you know to sneak a beer when you're really young. You know, border mentality is just a little different, and so my dad. Loved Heineken. Yeah. Still does. Uh, also, during those formative years, I was a huge fan of Oasis, and they love Heineken. And that was just my brand. Ah, okay. That was just cool. my brand. That's cool. <laughs> there was another one that they make, a uh, Real Ale makes one called Moonwalk, and I think uh, they took a break from making it, but that was definitely my favorite. That was it, favorite. it was a brute IPA. Okay. So what are like three books or cookbooks that inspired you the most? Books or cookbooks? Like books in general? Well, let's just say that because Inspire Me, Metahuman by Deepak, Moonlighting by Naveen Jain, and most recently Life by, by, oh my God, Keith Richards was my most recent book that was inspiring to me in many different ways just because I, man, I I love the rock star life. (laughs) I love the history of music. Uh, and those were books that, that I just liked a lot. Okay. Biggest, biggest pet peeves in the kitchen for you? Oh, dirtiness, tardiness, lack of urgency. Yeah, unorganization. Those are kind of my pet peeves. So tell me about the wildest ingredients that you ever found and decided to say, yep, I'm going to cook with that. <laughs> wildest ingredients. I don't know how wild it is to, you know, in a Mexican kitchen, but for a lot of our other customers, it was maybe cooking with like escamoles, which mm-hmm. are ant larvae. 
Yeah. And they're just fantastic. It's a it's a tough sell, but it's they're very creamy and you I cook love them it. with a little garlic and serrano and tomato. Oh. Saute, saute, and then you can just put them on all kinds of fun stuff. So that's that's always an interesting one to cook with. Oh, ambergris was also a very interesting one. We I knew a mixologist that worked with us early on, and he had made a really interesting cocktail with ambergris, which is, I forget exactly how it's harvested, but it comes from whales, some kind of deposit from a whale that ends up on the beach, and it becomes very valuable in some areas. It's hard to get but a very interesting perfume scent. And I believe it's actually even used in perfumes, but that was a very interesting ingredient to work with that I probably wouldn't use, you know, that we wouldn't use that often. And then another one might've been like creosote. I'm from El Paso again, that, that part of Texas, when it rains, the creosote bush releases a scent that you'll only, that you'll only see there or smell in that area. And it, it's just like the cleanest, it's the vegetal and it's minerally, and it definitely says it's raining in the desert. When you smell it, it evokes so much emotion, especially for those who grew up knowing it. And those are, that's a fun one to put in a cocktail. Okay. Most difficult thing, though, to, to sell as far as tough ingredients is beef tongue, surprisingly. Beef tongue, okay. Yeah, golly. It's such a great cut of meat. Yeah. It's lean. It's so but beefy. People are uh, used to have it in tacos too. They can have it, correct? Yeah. There's there's a f- lot of fun ways to prepare it. But yeah. when you pr- try to present it to a table that's just not ready for it, uh, you mm. know, Ugh, beef tongue. Uh. Uh, <laughs> oh okay. My last <laughs> question here. If you could cook a meal for any person in history, what would it be and what would you make them? I would... I guess I would like to meet Deepak Chopra. He's still alive, so it's not a person in history. Yeah. And have some conversations. And it would be something light and definitely definitely something that that satiates but is very nutritious. And it would be my opportunity to ask a bunch of questions, metaphysical questions, Uh spiritual questions that Uh I've carried along for a long time. Okay, very good. So, Chef, because we leave, do you have anything else that you want to add? Yeah, so we're about to open up a coffee house. Uh, Greenhouse is the name of the coffee house. The idea behind that, again, is how do you feel when you leave? And I'm, we're starting off with an excellent coffee program and wholesome foods, a ton of gluten-free options that don't feel like they're gluten-free. And on top of that, we are getting ready to put on our fifth family meal, El Paso family meal dinner. El Paso family meal brings back chefs that grew up in El Paso and we work alongside other local chefs and and talent in El Paso to put a, a spotlight on all the artists and talent and just amazing people that, that are there. And it doesn't just happen in El Paso. Actually, our last one was on the beach in Jamestown, Rhode Island. Oh, wow. A sold out event and benefits help support the El Pasoans Fighting Hunger Food Bank which has a huge reach and has an extreme necessity. And so it's been an incredible journey reconnecting with the chefs back in my city and chefs that I didn't know had grown up there and came back. Chef, thank you very much for for your time and uh, being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. And just like that, we are at the end of another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Big thanks to Chef Rico Torres for taking us along on this awesome journey through Mitchley. Seriously, if you find yourself in San Antonio, you have to check it out. And don't forget to keep up with us too. Jump on over to social media, follow Flavors Unknown, and check out our website, flavorsunknown.com, to sign up for our newsletter. Remember, there's a whole world of flavors out there waiting for you to keep exploring and tasting. Thanks for listening, and I can't wait to share more food adventures with you next time on Flavors Unknown. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.